Jerry Ratcliffe again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr. Ella Cobain is an Associate Professor in the Department of Security and Crime Science at University College London. We discuss the challenges of tackling human trafficking and labour and sexual exploitation. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. The awesome Ella Cobain's coming up in a moment, but first a quick heads up that I'm lining up two new Police Commanders Crime Reduction courses in New Jersey and Florida. These three-day courses are ideally suited to mid-level Police Command staff and senior analysts, and the course is the only authorised training program accompanying the book Reducing Crime, a companion for police leaders. There will be one course in Central Jersey in late January, and another in the Tampa Bay area in February. What better way to beat the winter? Details will be available soon at reducingcrime.com slash events and announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Dr. Ella Cobain is an Associate Professor in the Department of Security and Crime Science at University College London and a visiting research fellow at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on human trafficking, child sexual exploitation and labour exploitation. Ella is interested in rigorous, outcome-oriented research and nuanced, evidence-informed responses to complex issues. She's worked closely with organisations across the public, private and third-party sectors and contributed to counter-trafficking interventions at national and international levels, including her co-chairing of the UK's National Working Group on the Prevention of Modern Slavery. Her new book is called Offender and Victim Networks in Human Trafficking. Ella and I talked over a nice cuppa at the Gildando Institute for Crime Science in London. She told me about trafficking, exploitive business policies, legislation that makes things worse, not better, and laundry detergent bubbles. In return, I learned how to use the right language around this whole area, question Norwegian sexual prowess, and upset Liam Neeson. So pretty much my normal contribution to an episode. How's your coffee? It's all right. I'm a tea person. You know, in America, it's different types of tea bags, and you can have it with lemon, you can have it with honey. And you come here, it's a cup of tea. There's a mug, there's a tea bag, there's hot water and there's some milk and get on with it. I love that. I miss that, but yeah. Time to come home. <laughs> we'll go that far. <laughs> come home in time for Brexit. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Possibly not the best time to come home. Mm. Oh yeah, good cup of tea, lovely. How did you get into this? You went to university as an undergraduate, didn't you? Yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Oxford. Right, I'm going to get torn apart for being even more ivory towers than I already was. I'm going to keep that one in the quiet. Oh, no. Look, people have heard of Oxford. I mean, the, the podcast interview I did with Renee Mitchell, she's like, oh, fuck it, I went to Cambridge. <laughs> so, this is not something we played out. And it's like, that's great. What did you do at Oxford? I did modern languages, so Russian and German. And you succeeded. You're still here in academia. So you yeah. didn't fail then. And then I worked in advertising for a while. And it got to the point where I was having to write strategy on the best way to do laundry demos. And, you know, where they're having the bubbles an inch 
bigger or pink or purple would make people buy more washing powder. Well, that's an exciting field to be in. Yeah, so I was sort of losing the will to live. <laughs> and that's when I came back to academia. And originally, because of the Russia connection, I was particularly interested in trafficking from the former Soviet Union to the UK. Sort of started working in the field and was told, actually, you know, that's not our biggest problem right now. So moved on over to do a lot of work on trafficking for various forms of labour exploitation, and then sort of working across a range of trafficking issues at the moment now. And now I have nothing to do with washing powder. That's probably a good thing, right? So why is the field of trafficking... <sighs> Why is it such a shit show? Because I mean, it's just become kind of a political football, hasn't it? This whole field, it's really grown. Your profile's grown, you've got lots of people following on Twitter. You, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to it. There must be times you must think, you know, can I just go back to figuring out the bubbles on laundry detergent? It's a difficult field because there's a fundamental tension there in that on the one hand, you get these extreme cases of exploitation that fall under the trafficking umbrella that really, really are horrific and absolutely you would want more to be done about them. Can you give me an example? One case I'd worked on, a guy was recruited while he was uh, sleeping rough and then he was... Here in the UK? Here in the UK. He was taken to a site and sort of moved around the country and exploited in the construction industry for 10, 20 years. So, I mean, that is a long, long time to be living in a shed or a horse box or a kind of broken down caravan with five other people with nowhere to wash, given kind of, you know, a few pieces of bread a day. And there was no way for him to figure a way out of that? Well, he just didn't really have many other options. And that is the problem. It's much less about this kind of abduction myth and this idea of kind of, you know, people being chained to radiators and not able to escape for that reason. A lot of the time it just comes down to psychological manipulation, limited alternatives. Where else are you going to go? So it's not like the movie Taken then? No, it's sort of have Liam Neeson in Taken with, you know, American girl being snatched off the streets of Paris and that's just not what happens. But yeah, so you have these really extreme dreadful cases, but then it's also really important to recognise that trafficking is not this kind of neatly delineated issue that sort of exists separately from everything else that's going on. And it's increasingly recognised that actually what we're dealing with here is a spectrum of exploitation. So trafficking is maybe not the best word. I mean, it's an umbrella term now, isn't it? Yeah. But really, it's a, there's not necessarily much trafficking. It's a great deal of just exploitation, right? Trafficking is involved. There's movement of people often, but not always in some places there doesn't have to be any movement for it to qualify as trafficking. The movement could be international, it could be within countries, it could be short distances, it could be permanent or it could be just for a few hours. So there's real variation there. So yeah, I think exploitation in many ways is more helpful, although again it's quite a slippery concept that isn't clearly defined. In many ways what we're talking about is labour abuses, sexual abuses, abuses of other you know, human rights and dignities or welfare, you know, things like taking people's organs. Okay, so there's this big kind of amorphous thing that we're calling trafficking, but it's really ex exploitation as much as trafficking as anything else. But it seems chaotic and now also seems to be a bit of a political football as well. Absolutely. So trafficking is like an easy issue for politicians to get behind because, you know, who doesn't care about people? 
And if you frame it's it... It's very easy to be on the tough-on kind of crime area because exactly. nobody cares about traffickers, right? And it gets painted in more and more dramatic terms as... You know, I was listening to a parliamentary debate the other day where they were talking about merchants of evil and slave traders in reference to, you know, modern day traffickers who really, I mean, that sort of dramatic language is pretty misleading. Really? It's pretty inaccurate. And actually, a lot of the time, it's structures and systems that create the opportunity for abuse, just as much as kind of individual people taking op taking advantage of those loopholes, those opportunities. So we have, for example, a big tension in the UK between, on the one hand, big push behind the sort of anti-modern slavery agenda, which has been the kind of flagship project of Prime Minister May. Theresa May. Theresa May, exactly. Or by the time this comes out, ex-Prime Minister Theresa May. Yes, good point. And on the other hand, the Conservative government has been aggressively pursuing a hostile environment agenda on immigration, so you know the introduction of things like an offence of illegal working. If you make it criminal for people to work, if they have irregular migration status, what you're doing is you're opening up a whole set of people who are then very vulnerable to exploitation. Okay, so this is fascinating. So we're trying to be tough on the individuals involved, but equally policy can create the circumstances that allow them to flourish. Absolutely. Because crime just needs an opportunity. Offenders take advantage of opportunity. The whole kind of environmental criminology field, the opportunities field, is about reducing criminal opportunities. And so what you're saying is that, in actual fact, government policies can create opportunities. Yes, and in the exact same way, business practices can create opportunities. So if we're talking about trafficking for labour exploitation, then we need to look at things like the decline of unionisation, reduced collective bargaining coverage, so workers less able to sort of stand up for themselves as a group, uh, zero hours contracts, more precarity in the workforce. So all these factors that actually mean, you know, you have a disempowered workforce that is far less able to stand up for their rights. So that's going to be similar to the situation potentially in the United States where we have issues about border walls and increased focus on illegal immigrants. And these things aren't going to stop people coming into the country, but is, it poten is the potential there to create more opportunity for exploitation of people? Trump, for example, loves the whole kind of trafficking angle because it plays into, you know, Mexicans are racist, Central and South Americans are people traffickers, bringing people across the border. And it is that kind of individualization of sort of evil, for want of a better word. Whereas actually, desperate people with limited alternatives end up in situations where they are very vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. I've done work for probably close to a decade in El Salvador and I get the driving forces that push people away. The violence down there is, is, is almost un I mean, it's unconscionable. But to some degree, the counter argument would be, well, they're not wrong. There is trafficking coming into the United States. What you're saying is that there's the potential to create policy that actually increases the opportunities for trafficking and exploitation yes. has this unintended consequence? Well, that's an interesting question because the term unintended consequence implies it's accidental. In this area, I think we need to ask some serious questions about which consequences are unintended and what was a consequence that people knew was going to happen and didn't particularly care. And we see that very, very obviously the dis distinction when it comes to measures that are kind of packaged up as ways of combating sex trafficking. 
for example, in the States, the introduction of the Foster-Sesta legislation, which is Fight Online Sex Trafficking and Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which is designed as, you know, this big package of legislative reform that will tackle this absolute evil that is sex trafficking. But actually what it is in reality is it makes life very, very, very difficult for anyone in the sex industry, be it someone there by choice, be it someone there by circumstance because of limited alternatives, or someone who's coerced. So the Foster-Sester Act, which is US legislation yeah. and now is law, yeah. actually has the potential to increase the very thing it's sort of designed to try and combat? Yeah, it makes people much more vulnerable to abuse. So what it does is it effectively holds businesses accountable for the material they're hosting on their website. So it makes it illegal to host content related to advertising prostitution, regardless of whether that sort of commercial sex exchange is consensual or not. So what that does is it pushes people underground, it makes it far harder to find clients safely, it makes it far harder to vet clients safely. And I'm sure it also increases risks in terms of managing money and the finances around all these kinds of areas as well. So for people who are not being trafficked, but people who are voluntarily deciding that sex work is how they're going to seek some of their employment, we're actually making it harder for them and driving them towards the very thing that the Act is designed to stop. Do you think that those consequences were potentially known by the framers of the legislation? Yes, there was a lot of discussion before the legislation was passed about the harms that, for example, sex worker organisations envisaged these laws would do, and they weren't properly listened to. And it was brought in, and these harms are then playing out. There's been stories of law enforcement in the States saying, what we're now struggling with is now that these kind of big sites where we could find all the ads have gone, don't host these ads anymore. It's much, much harder for us to identify suspicious cases where we do think there's genuine abuse. Oh, good grief. So it's failing on the front it was designed to do ostensibly. And at the same time, it's causing huge collateral damage to an already vulnerable and marginalized population of sex workers. How can we demonstrate this? The trouble is, and this is where trafficking becomes such a complex field to work in, is that it's not neutral terrain. It comes it with this moral baggage has that enormous, people bring. Enormous moral baggage, it's highly emotive, highly politicised, despite kind of being a cross-cutting political issue. And that makes it very, very challenging. So a big policy question at the moment is around prostitution laws. And there's a big push towards introducing something called the Nordic model, where what you do is you criminalise the act of buying sex while supposedly removing the sanctions on people selling sex. That makes no sense whatsoever. No, I mean, it's total madness. And this, they're doing this in Norway? Uh, they've done it in Norway, they've done it to be in fair, Sweden. It's so, to be fair, it's so damn cold up there, probably nobody's having sex anyway. <laughs> when the Norwegian summer lasts about 25 minutes. And I'm sorry, listeners from Norway, I know there's like three <laughs> listeners from Norway who are now just fuming. <laughs> It's cold and expensive in Norway. Yeah. Okay, so that makes absolutely no sense. Okay, you're decriminalizing it to some degree. Let's just keep let's keep the relationship in the That is how the people proposing this legislation oh, okay. say it is. They say it's decriminalizing. 
It's not. What it's really doing is it's criminalizing people selling sex by proxy because their clients are now doing something illegal, so they're pushed into much more dangerous situations. They you know, have to go to areas they might not go to. There's potentially taking on riskier clients, not being able to vet them as well. Yeah. And also, there's still, and we're seeing this in Ireland right now, a whole host of laws that are being used to crack down on people selling sex. So now what we have is these types of legislation are being suggested for the UK. They're being suggested for the UK while shamelessly maintaining the pretense that this will combat trafficking and that it will reduce the burden on vulnerable people and completely ignoring all the evidence to the contrary including, for example, very recently two migrant sex workers in Ireland were jailed and they were jailed under brothel-keeping offences. And what they were doing is they were working together for safety. So the idea that, you know, this legislative change is going to protect so-called victims is just flagrantly untrue. So they weren't necessarily being trafficked. They weren't being pimped out, is that? What's the right language around this? Pimped isn't a great word because it comes with a lot of baggage and it comes with a lot of racial baggage okay. as well. So they weren't being exploited? exploited by a third okay, party. they won't be exploited. Thank you. So they weren't being exploited by a third party, they weren't being trafficked, they were voluntarily working as sex workers, and the legislation was used in what sounds to me like the most inappropriate way towards people who are the least likely harmful people in this environment. Yeah. So there's all this evidence that this mm. stuff is harmful. What is it like being a researcher working in this environment then, when the area you're working in is this whole politically charged, moral, probably should have air quotes around that because some of it sounds very immoral, Yeah. environment? It's um, endlessly frustrating. <laughs> don't you, want to, you want to go back to laundry bubbles, don't you? Get me back to the laundry detergent. I want to write policy papers on bubble size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, it's a fascinating area, but it's a hugely frustrating area because I think there's some really questionable and worrying things going on in this space. I think there's also a lot of people who work in this space, be it as academics or be it as practitioners or policymakers, because they genuinely do want to make conditions better for people. Right. But there's again this sort of this tension between advocacy and accuracy. So we have these big sweeping claims, which pretty much everyone in the field knows are unsubstantiated, finger-in-the-air myths, like trafficking is the fastest growing crime threat, or trafficking is the third most profitable organised crime. Claims about the scale, which are based on very dubious um, statistical exercises that lack transparency, lack rigour, like for example the Global Slavery Index claims there are 40.3 million slaves in the world. That's not accurate? No, not in the least. I mean it's based on uh, methods that are very, very secretive, that have been heavily criticised, a very small number of identified So we're cases. talking could be wrong by tens of millions? Yeah. Oh, but they said 40.3 to give it that, that spurious accuracy kind of feel mm -hmm. to it. Okay. Oh, and the figures fluctuate millions each time because they shift their algorithms or their methods slightly. And but you know, as somebody who knows very little about this field, what I'm starting to understand from you is that there isn't, it's either slavery or not slavery. What we have is this continuum of absolutely awful cases in one hand. And as you progress down this continuum, you just gently slide into people who are voluntarily engaged in activities. Yeah, and lower level Everything labor abuses, which Lab are also bad and should also be tackled. 
But there isn't that appetite to tackle those because a lot of those are a function of our sort of global economic system and the way businesses operate locally. And there right. isn't that incentive, you know. So they like to frame trafficking as sex trafficking and vulnerable children and women because that looks good in our annual reports with photographs of us seeming to care. But we're not actually talking about the exploitation of migrant workers that we pay minimum wage to to do incredibly long hours and six and a half days work a week. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, labour trafficking, more and more attention is being paid to it, but it's still treated as this exceptionalised separate issue, as if that's somehow completely different from routine labour abuses. And I get the sense from following you on Twitter and seeing some of the Twitter exchanges, let's call them by their polite term, <laughs> the shit show that is sometimes Twitter, right? <laughs> Wake up in the morning, what the fuck is going on now? Yeah. Um, I get the sense that a lot of this stuff is racially tinged as well, that we, we do love to demonise, don't we? Yes, and this, interestingly, is there from the very beginning. So the sort of origins of modern responses to trafficking date back to the early 20th century and a kind of big moral panic around the so-called white slave trade. Right. And really, this was wrapped up with a social hygiene agenda. So again, morality coming in, sort of fear around sex work. It was wrapped up with fear of immigrants and this whole kind of idea of the sort of threat, let's say, in New York from the opium dens and the local women being corrupted. And so we see that. We see that with trafficking today as well. So is it actually more realistic that, unlike in Taken, the characters being rescued by Liam Neeson, what's much more likely is a Liam Neeson-type character is actually taking away his housekeeper's passport and paying her a minimum wage? It, yeah, I mean, it, basically what it comes and, down to And if to you're is... Liam Neeson, by the way, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about you. Please don't come and sort me out. I'm a big fan. Love your work. You'll know, you'll know you've made the big time when Liam Neeson deigns <laughs> to sue you. Oh, <laughs> I said Liam Neeson type character. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, now I'm in it. <laughs> yeah, well, really... Love his work. Love his work, right? Great movies, realistic. Absolutely on point. <laughs> yeah, really, the issue is how are you defining the problem? Because the nature of the problem comes around to, you know, what are you identifying as trafficking cases in the first place? So we've seen a really interesting shift in the UK since the Modern Slavery Act came in in 2015, that there's a much, much higher proportion of identified suspected trafficking victims are British. And that's largely been driven by the attention around so-called county lines. So this idea of young people and vulnerable adults being used to move drugs from urban areas to rural areas and sell them. We almost don't have a decent measure of exploitation and trafficking because we re keep redefining it. And so as every time we do that, the measures start to change because people start classifying it in ways that they weren't doing so in the past. Yeah, so there's absolutely this sort of exploitation creep. And it again comes down to the fact you have these kind of broad and inclusive definitions that could cover lots of stuff. So but but isn't, that isn't that a good thing? In many ways, it is a good thing. Because it's bringing, it's shining light on criminal opportunities that perhaps hadn't received a focus in the past. So yes, absolutely worth paying attention to these issues, especially where people are being exploited, especially when we're dealing with something like children. Yeah. At the same time, it's very, very difficult from the perspectives of things like measurement if it's not crystal clear what is and isn't being counted as trafficking. So, for example, some child sexual exploitation cases will be seen as trafficking. Others won't. But there isn't really a kind of agreement on when they should be and when they shouldn't be. 
So we have these figures for suspected trafficking cases in the UK and at last count it was close on 7,000. So it's been going up year on year since the data first started being collected in 2009. Each case is an individual victim? Yeah, okay. individual suspected victim. Right. But if you went all child abuse, we're now treating as trafficking, rather than an unclearly defined subset of it, then potentially your numbers just explode through the roof. Right. There is it, again It changes the scale of what you have to provide. Right. Do you just want to be identifying more and more potential trafficking victims and giving them that label? Or do you want to be providing people with meaningful long-term support? And if we can't even accurately measure it, we don't know if we're having any effect on it. Absolutely. And that's particularly an issue with big global estimates of scale, but I am being quite scathing. The only person that's going to come out of this badly is me, because Liam Nielsen's going to hunt me down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm screwed at this result of this. I've got to edit Liam Neeson out. Every time I mention him, all the, all the listeners are going to hear, because I put white noise on the back of it. Who's doing this work? Who's doing this well? I think there's some really good research in the States by Amy Farrell and colleagues looking around law enforcement responses to human trafficking. And are the law enforcement responses good? Is law enforcement figuring out how to deal with this? She has a wonderful quote that really stuck with me in one of her articles about how, I'm paraphrasing here, so too often we rest on this sort of comfortable assumption that once you've passed the laws, you've done what needs to be done. Right. And actually, in the States as well, there's this big implementation gap. Politicians love the idea of passing laws because it's all they can do, but they never want to sink the money into actually doing anything, implementing those laws. Exactly. If you start to see trafficking as part of the bigger picture, then we need to be asking questions about things like austerity measures, funding for mental health services, funding for general health services, funding for the police. In many ways, it's easier to say, you know, we're going to put five million into tackling trafficking than to say, you know, we're going to fundamentally look at the way our labour markets operate. What's interesting is having followed policing in some fashion for now the last 35 years, this just seems like a new initiative without ever taking anything away. I've never seen an area of police work taken away from the police, but I've seen it over the last 30 years, but I've seen stuff added to it and it never comes with additional resources. The policing changes are probably likely to be have modest impact, whereas what we're really doing is not tackling the structural capacity and, nor the opportunity structures. Yeah. Deregulation of business is going to encourage them to exploit workers because they'll make more money. Yeah, and we have in the UK, for example, woefully under-resourced labour inspectorates that are far below the kind of national minimum standards expected internationally. <laughs> there'll, uh, be, there'll be some listeners from America going, what's a labour inspectorate? <laughs> they don't even have that in some places. Yeah, so but your, your, you know, your chances of actually being checked up on are very, very low. With policing, what I would say is two things. So there's been a big investment in a sort of national police transformation uh, programme around the slavery here in the UK. One thing that's quite worrying is, you know, they've been funded to do a lot of work and have been trying very hard to sort of bring up awareness and understanding and improve data collection and the numbers of recorded offences have gone up and lots of stuff's been going on but it was funded very short term. And then the big question is, well, what happens next? And the second question, or second point, is um, the more I engage with sex worker organizations, they are experiencing things which are framed as welfare checks, 
and really it's feeling like surveillance and um, enforcement under the sort of anti-trafficking umbrella. And I think that's an area where we need much, much better engagement with sex worker groups and representation at the table in trafficking to discussions. And the same goes for those who represent uh, domestic workers, bringing these groups to the table to ensure that anti-trafficking measures aren't harmful to other groups affected. It sounds almost like we can't even decide what are the goals we're trying to achieve. And that's the part that worries me most about this. It's the 21st century. Sorry to be depressing here for a moment, but it sounds like we can't accurately measure this. We can't decide how to define this. We can't figure out what we want to do in terms of addressing it. And we can't even figure out we've got all these competing goals. It sounds like we have no clear idea what we're doing. And I'm trying to think about this from this perspective, not of a national policymaker, but if I was trying to figure out a policy for a city like London or a city like Philadelphia, I wouldn't even know where to start on the basis of this amorphous, ill-defined concern with all these potential harmful consequences. Was that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think lots is going on. There's some good things that are being achieved. I think there's some not very good things that are happening. But I think, yeah, the lack of clarity and focus and transparency is a real concern. So we need, A, we need clarity around definitions, but B, we need investment in really good, larger scale, original research that would help you understand, for example, these things that are used so widely as indicators, actually, are they just characteristics of the general job market? So that comes to something that I wanted to talk about. I'm trying to think about it from the policing perspective because there is increased focus on the public and police officers being asked to identify the signs of trafficking. And is that area reliable? So there's kind of two pieces to this. How robust is that? And then the the second piece I want to ask is, you know, how do we know what to do with it when we see it? Yeah, so the issue of indicators is a really, really big challenge in this space and something that worries me more and more. What you have is a set, a kind of long list of indicators that are used in varying kind of versions very widely. And they often form the basis of measurements and they form the basis of awareness campaigns. Yeah, I've seen these kind of things. Yeah, be aware of trafficking. Spot the signs. Though I'm not really sure I have any idea what I'd be looking at. No, I don't think most people can. I mean, in some instances, yes, potentially you can spot abuse and you should be reporting it and you could do good things. Okay, so obvious things like? Like I see my neighbour has someone living at the end of their garden in a shed that is emaciated. I'm talking extreme because I think when you go to the extremes, it becomes easier. But often what these indicators are is they've been developed a long time ago around sort of expert consensus on what we might see in trafficking and they haven't really ever been tested they've not been updated and we don't know a to what extent they genuinely apply to cases identified as trafficking and b and just as importantly how good are they at distinguishing between trafficking and non-trafficking. So say we do find it, so I'm a senior police officer in a town in the United States, for example, and I get called somewhere. You know, there is a suspicion that there is trafficking taking place at, oh, stereotype, but here we go, a nail salon, right, in the town. I don't get a real sense that we know what to do with that. We might investigate that individual premises, but what do we do as a city-wide policy? I think it's really, 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 really challenging. I have a lot of sympathy for individual officers encountering suspected victims of trafficking that 
you know, we know that people who have been trafficked and abused may not disclose for lots and lots of reasons. They might be afraid of recriminations from the people who've been exploiting them. They might be scared of immigration enforcement. Well, they may come from places where the relationship with law enforcement isn't what it could be. Exactly. So there's lots and lots of reasons why someone who genuinely would qualify under whatever national standards as a trafficking victim wouldn't say so. Yeah. But there's also people who just quite simply aren't exploited in that they don't self-define as it and they think the circumstance they're in is sort of acceptable. So how you sort of distinguish between the two is really, really challenging. I'm here to rescue you. I don't want to be rescued. Exactly. And that's Stop why... taking away my employment. Absolutely. And that's why there's a big move, again, coming back to the sex worker community, because a lot of the pushback has been happening there towards this call for rights, not rescue. The piece that I find so difficult about this is that with these broad brush legislations that seek to protect people at one area, they also penalise people at the other end of the spectrum who are voluntarily engaged, for example, in sex work and they're not being exploited by a third party and they're not being trafficked. And it's taking away their agency for their own employment and for their own decisions about how they want to live their life. Absolutely. And the other issue building on that is that a lot of portrayals of trafficking victims are very, very two-dimensional and it's this sort of perfect victims and don't recognise that actually these are complex people too who have agency, who make decisions, who make choices, often under very constrained circumstances and that doesn't stop them being victims but we need to recognise that a lot more. And um, also it then boils over into what you do once you've identified someone as a potential victim. Because again, you need to respect their autonomy and their agency in being able to make decisions about what's best for them next. I think what's really interesting for me from this discussion is this is, this, is a realisation that what we're actually talking about is this continuum. Yeah. Where so much of what we should be concerned about isn't so easily labelled and identified as teams of people from former Soviet bloc with heavy weapons, you know, shepherding, you know, lots of people together in container trucks. But it's actually a much more amorphous, creeping exploitation that's just very perniciously working its way through our society. It sounds, it feels like a really challenging area to be working in. That's a good characterization of it. And it's also a much, much bigger challenge to try and address, which perhaps is scary. Um, it's scary probably because we're not talking about the size and shapes of bubbles in laundry detergent. This, you know, this kind of work has real implications for people in the United States and in Australia and, and in the UK and, and even in Norway where it's incredibly cold and there just aren't enough Liam Nielsen's to go around. And that's, yeah, and that's as sort of, as is sort of individual research for working on trafficking related issues, that's the tension I feel more and more. I'm working on sort of identified cases at the extremes and I think they're important and I think by understanding these better we can do more to combat them. But at the same time I'm increasingly aware that we've got to put these individual cases within their context and we've got to look more at the systems and we've got to ask difficult questions about what needs to be done there as well. So we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. We're going to have to, it's much better to use these cases as examples of identifying where the structural weaknesses are in our society and shutting down the opportunities. Absolutely. And you don't want to go back to laundry detergent? No. What I can do is on the podcast page of reducingcrime.com, I can put a link to 
some of the materials that you have so that people can read a little bit more about this area because I think lots of people are going to find it fascinating. That would be great. Thank you. And I will also put a link to an email address where people can contact me, uh, even though I'm going to be going into hiding because Liam Neeson (laughs) and Liam Neeson fans are going to be stalking me. Liam, you're never going to listen to this, but if you do, uh, love your work and uh, yeah, take them as a splendid movie <laughs> even if we just learned it didn't bear much relationship to most of the exploitation traffic that goes on <laughs> and, and i'm sure your housekeeper's wonderful too <laughs> and legitimately employed and i never meant to cast aspersions <laughs> oh dear god all right then so uh, i'm just going to go off and form the liam neeson fan club to excellent to, sign me up to, as, to assuage to assuage my guilt and uh, I'm just going to finish off by saying, Ella Cobain, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to episode 15 of Reducing Crime, recorded in London in June 2019. Other episodes lurk at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Hey, be safe and best of luck. <laughs>